All right, so we've all been here. We've all been to the, the place where you're in this deep sleep. It is, it is a vivid dream. And in this dream, it is just amazing. You're having an incredible dream. You're wishing it would never end. You're so engulfed with it, it just seems like it's real. And then all of a sudden, something wakes you up and you're snapped back into reality. And you realize that your dream was just a facade. And now you're awoken to the real reality that you've got tests, you've got papers, you've got relationship drama, you've got all this stuff going on in real life and your dream was just fake. We've all had that moment before, right? For me, one that came to my mind, and I can't believe I'm even like sharing this with you guys, but one that came to my mind was when I was in high school, uh, I was having a dream one night, and I don't know why I had this dream, so don't ask me. I was having a dream one night that my family decided to get a bunch of baby chicks. I don't know why, but we had a bunch of baby chicks and they were adorable. They were really cute. And in this dream, I can remember seeing them, thinking, man, look at how, how adorable these things are. And I picked one up and I was sitting there just, just petting the baby chick in my dream. It was so soft and so sweet. And I just felt that everything was right with the world, you know? Everything just felt at peace. Everything just felt joyous. It was just so good and it felt so real. I could just feel the chick that I was petting until it happened where I was jolted back to reality. I was, I woke up and in my, uh, when I was waking up, I, my hand was still like stroking the baby chick and I was really sad realizing that it was just a dream, that it wasn't real life. I was brought back to the sad reality of life. And again, we've all been there. Maybe for you, you weren't petting a baby chick, but you've had times like that where you've been woken up from a good dream just to face harsh reality. Now, here's why I tell you this. That that is what the nature of death does to us. Death interrupts and death sobers. And for many of us, we can tend to walk through life in this somewhat of a dream state where death is just kind of at the far backs of our minds that we don't really call to our memory or think about all that much. But then when death comes and faces us, when death strikes near to us, it jolts us back to reality. It awakens us from our, our drunken slumber and we become more aware of our own mortality. Tonight, we're continuing our series, Chasing the Wind, where we're looking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've said that Ecclesiastes was written by this preacher or this teacher, and this preacher or teacher is commonly known as either Solomon or maybe a Solomon-like figure, someone who was looking at life under the sun, life in this created world, and saying, okay, what is there to this life? What is the meaning of all this? Is there purpose in any of this? And he seeks after to find the meaning and purpose of life in Ecclesiastes is like his lab report. It's him saying, hey, this is what I found. And tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, what we just read, the teacher wants us to come face to face with death. He wants us to be jolted out of our dreamlike stupor and face the reality of death and then let that reality shape how we live. And so what I wanna to do tonight as we walk through this, I wanna first give you a truth statement that's seen in these verses, and then later on I wanna give you an application statement that flows from that truth statement. Does that make sense? So I'm gonna give a truth statement, and then we're gonna give an application statement that flows from that truth statement. So that's kinda of where we're going tonight. So here's the truth statement. The truth statement is this, life is uncertain, and death is certain. Life is uncertain, and death is certain. 
Super encouraging, right? Really exciting. Just hold on, we'll get there. So that is the truth that we see all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher is, is constantly showing us both of these truths. If you look in verse 11 that we just read tonight, it shows the uncertainty of life. The fastest don't always win the race. The strongest don't always win the battle. The most intelligent don't always make the most money. And the wisest don't always get favor. Life doesn't really work the way we think it should work sometimes. And, and we really get this. Um, nine times out of 10, yes, the better team's gonna win, but sometimes the not better team does win. 99 times out of 100, Duke will beat Mercer. But on that one time when Mercer beats Duke, the school is going to talk about it for years and years and years when no one even cares. They're gonna keep talking about it because it was an amazing thing. Um, usually the hardworking kid's gonna get the better grades and the lady kid, lazy kid's gonna fail, but sometimes the lazy kid's gonna do better. Usually the person who stays away from, from all these unhealthy things and, and pays attention to his health and eats healthy, usually that person's gonna live longer than the person who smokes, drinks whiskey, and eats ice cream daily. But sometimes the health nut dies young and the guy who smokes, drinks whiskey, and eats ice cream daily lives to be 112 years old. That's him right there. This is Richard Overton. He is a World War II vet and he, he did pass away in 2018, but he passed away at the age of 112 years old. He was the oldest World War II vet um, at the time, and so they did a little documentary on him, they asked him about his daily routines, and here's what he said his daily routines were. He said, sometimes I will smoke upwards to 12 cigars a day, I will drink up to about four cups of coffee a day, and sometimes that many glasses of whiskey too. And I finished every night with a bowl of ice cream before bed. And that man led, or lived until 112 years old. And some of you health nuts are really reconsidering your whole diets right now and reconsidering things. But that's just it. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Life is uncertain. So life is uncertain, but what is definitely certain is death. Death is certain. In verses two through three, the teacher lists several mirrorisms. Now, a mirrorism is a rhetorical device where the writer was gonna list contrasting uh, parts to represent a whole. So he talks about the righteous die, the wicked die, the good die, the evil die, those who worship die, those who don't worship die, everyone in between, they all die. Now, he's not saying there's perfect people when he says righteous and good, because he's already said in Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Um, what he's saying, though, is, is people who appear to be doing good, people who, are, who try to do the right things, even the people who worship God, death doesn't discriminate. They all go to the grave. Death is going to pursue every single one of us until our last breath, and we might evade it for some period of time, but eventually death comes for us all. And in verse 12, the teacher brings these two truths together. He gives the examples of a fish caught in a net and a bird caught in a snare. And you think about the, the fish and the bird, think about these examples. The fish and the bird, they're just doing what they do every day. They're swimming along, flying along, they, they do the same things that they've done every other day of their life until randomly they're caught in the net or randomly they're caught in the snare and when they woke up that morning, they didn't know, but that was their last day. Um, I remember for me, uh, when this truth sank in when I was younger, I remember a specific time I had a friend and his, his dad ended up uh, unexpectedly passing away. 
Um, he was driving to work as he always did, and he stopped at a stoplight, and a car rear-ended him into the middle of the intersection, and he got hit and ended up passing away. And I remember for me, that, that wasn't the first person I knew who had passed away, or even really unexpectedly, but the thing that got me was, was it wasn't that he was sick, it wasn't that he had some terminal illness, it wasn't that he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing, he was just doing his everyday routine, the thing that he did regularly, and yet his life was taken from him. Um, he was going to work like he did every other day. And I'm sure if we all gathered around, we could share story after story after story of someone passing away unexpectedly, of people who leave this earth just what seems to be just way too soon. Um, just this past week, for those of you who were in church on Sunday morning, you know that, that Pastor Kevin lost his mom unexpectedly um, on Saturday. She was in her 70s, but what I've, I'm told is she could run circles about around any of us. She was so active and healthy and she had just this unexpected accident and she ended up passing away and we had her funeral here on Tuesday. And so the point is, we never know when death's gonna come. Um, it might come early, it might come later, but it always comes. And, and that's the truth that we see in these verses. Um, and we don't like to talk about that, right? In our culture, we like to put death at the back of our minds. We, we don't often really think about it all that much, especially us who are young, and I know I've got gray hair, but I'm still considering myself as someone young. I'm, I'm not 30 yet, so I'm still young. But, but especially us who are young, we don't really think about death all that much. We sometimes, we wouldn't say this, but we feel a little invincible. We don't really contemplate it all that much. And, and for some reason, I mean, we've got uh, this life expectancy rate has continued to incline for years and years and years, right? At one point in time, just like a simple cut could be like the end for you. You get a cut and then the next day it gets infected and there's no medicine to fix it and then you're just done. Like that was the reality that they faced back in history. Um, you could go back just a couple hundred years ago and go to a 35 year old's funeral and say, well, at least he lived a very full life. But now that's, that's young. Our is, I looked at the CDC's statistics and the average life expectancy rate for guys is 75 and for girls it's 80. Guys, for some reason, we don't live as long as the girls do. You take that as you will. But 75, 80 years old. And so for us, we don't really think about it when you're in your 20s, when you're in your 30s. It's just kind of in the back of our lives. Um, so with modern technology and, and medicine, um, we just don't think about it. Um, we don't even like to speak about it. You notice we, we like to use euphemisms for death. We use other words. We don't say, oh, someone died. We say they passed away or they've gone to a better place or, or maybe if it's an animal, I don't know if your, your parents told you they're going to greener pastures or, or something like that. I don't think they say that anymore, but they've gone to greener pastures and so on, all these different things. But the point is we try to clean them up. We don't even like to talk about it. Um, but while the life expectancy rate increases, the mortality rate stays the same. It's 100%. Every single one of us will die. Now, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, that's a story and a sermon for another day. Everyone dies. We all will face death. The mortality rate stays the same unless Jesus decides to come back and take every single one of us home. Um, we're faced with death. We're faced with our own mortality. And the question is why? Why is this the reality? Why is death the reality for us? And we trace it back to the beginning of time. We trace it back to Genesis chapter three, we trace it back to the fall. 
You see, when, when God created mankind, he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was good. He had fellowship and relationship with Adam and Eve. He says, I just want you to obey me, delight in me, enjoy me, um, and, and if you do this, you will live forever. But what we know is Adam and Eve didn't obey. They rebelled against him, and what he told them is, if you rebel, if you don't follow my commands, you will surely die. Sin brings death. And, and like the teacher points out in Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See, man rejects God's rule, and they embrace, embrace self-rule. And when you reject and separate yourself from the author and sustainer of life, the result is death. Immediately, there was spiritual and relational death. Immediately, we were cut from God. And then following that, every single man and woman following would, would give way to physical death as well. And all of creation is fractured by sin and death. Like we see, we see elements of beauty and good even in our fallen world, but we also see destruction and we see pain and sadness and death itself. And, and not a single one of us escapes this life unscathed. We all give way to it. And, and there's an extra sting that's tagged along with death because of what the, the teacher's gonna conclude at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He's gonna say, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the reality is we are all sinners and far from God. We all are wicked in our hearts and minds and we all die and God is a just judge who will bring every one of those wicked deeds into judgment. And so there's a sting tagged along to death. And the teacher wants to highlight this to us so that we can be jolted and awakened to this reality. So we will not be kind of coasting through life, but so that we can see this. And he does this not to bring us to a place of despair and hopelessness and to a place of anxiety. He does this, uh, he's not trying to, to just leave us broken. And the question then says, okay, how? How can these realities, all the things that we talked about, how can that not leave you broken? How can that not lead you to a place of despair and of anxiety if you're faced with death and thinking about death and considering death? How can we know the reality that we have sinned against the holy God of the universe, know that death is coming for us all, and then know that God is gonna judge our wicked deeds yet not be brought to uh, anxiety and despair? Well, the reason how is because we read this in light of the whole counsel of scripture. We read it in light of uh, all of God's word. See, in Eden, after the fall, God promises the woman that there would be a descendant that would come and would crush the head of the serpent. This descendant would be talked about throughout history, throughout scripture, would be prophesied about, would be hoped for. And Isaiah 25, 8, it says this about him. It says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. He said this descendant of the woman would come and he would swallow up death forever. Death would be no more. He would bring death to death. And that descendant would come and his name is Jesus. Jesus fully man, but he's also fully God. And he spent his ministry and his life fighting against death and its effects. He healed the sick, he cleansed the lepers, he made the lame dance and sing, he gave sight to the blind, and much more. 
Even on a few occasions, he had uh, up close and personal uh, moments where he fought death one-on-one. There was a time when a synagogue ruler named Jairus uh, had his daughter die and he came to Jesus. And Jesus came to where this girl was and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she got up. The dead girl came to life. We see it also with one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, got sick and he died. And Jesus goes and and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, were crying and weeping at his feet. And and Jesus said, said to them this astonishing proclamation over death. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That was John eleven fifteen through 26. And so Jesus then, after saying that, um, he goes to where Lazarus' tomb was. He says, take me to where he is. And he calls Lazarus out of the tombs. And Lazarus, who had been in the tomb so long that he started to stink, came to life out of that tomb. But even Jesus in this moment before he brought him to life, even though he knew what he was going to do, when he was face to face with death, it broke his heart. Jesus shed tears over the loss of his friend, over seeing the effects that sin and death had on his beautiful creation. And, but Jesus' ministry continued, ultimately to the right and appointed time, in the most upside down and paradoxical way, he dealt death a decisive blow. Jesus, the very author of life, allowed himself to be uh, beaten and scourged, nailed to an instrument of death called a cross. And on that cross, though he was sinless, he bore the sins of the world. He, though he was sinless, he drank the cup of God's wrath poured out on sin. And there on that cross, the unimaginable happened. Jesus died. And when he died, it seemed as though all hope was lost. It seemed that death had defeated him ultimately. But what we know is that they took his lifeless body and they placed him in a borrowed tomb. The tomb was borrowed because of what it tells us in Acts 2.24. Death could not hold Jesus. On the third day, God raised him to life. And with that resurrection came the defeat of death itself. And his resurrection, hear this, this is so important, his resurrection becomes our hope. Colossians 1.18 tells us that the, he was the firstborn of the dead. He was the firstborn of the dead. That because of his resurrection, we have hope for resurrection. See, without his resurrection, we're hopeless. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that, that if Jesus was not resurrected, then our faith is in vain, it is futile, and we are still in our sins, and we are to be pitied if Jesus is not resurrected. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we have hope that though, yes, we may die, yet shall we live. We have this hope because of the truth told in 1 Peter 2, 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so for those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord and and believed in who he is and what he did on the cross, believed that God raised him from the dead, we have hope of resurrection because our sins were dealt with on his cross. And then we have hope for what was prophesied earlier in Isaiah, what we read. 
And Revelation 21, 4 describes that same day as this. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Christian has that hope that Jesus will come and he will wipe away every tear and he will ultimately bring death to death. That's the hope of the Christian. And it's through that lens that we see the truth that life is uncertain and death is certain. And because of that lens, we then get to our application that through, though that truth is true, um, we should enjoy life and live intentionally. That because, because life is uncertain, because death is certain, we can then enjoy life and live intentionally. So, so hear me say this. Now, if Jesus isn't a part of the equation, if Jesus uh, does not defeat death, if he's not resurrected, then this isn't the natural application. This isn't the natural application from the sobering truth of death. Without Jesus in the equation, the natural response to, to death being certain is to live recklessly or live with great anxiety or maybe even do both. If this life is all there is and Jesus isn't in the equation, then the only thing I can do is try to pile up all the good things I can possibly find and just try to live life doing whatever I want to do. But, but the thing about that is, is all those things, they won't satisfy apart from Christ. And at the end of the day, death will render them all null and void. The other natural response is anxiety and fear. If you're saying, hey, death is coming, and you don't know when it's coming, then some people, if they, they don't have the hope of Christ or they're not reflecting on the hope of Christ, then the natural response is, is fear and anxiety that cripples you and paralyzes you from moving forward. But with Jesus a part of this equation, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. For, for Christians, the reality of death actually leads us to be able to enjoy life, with, or enjoy life and live with intention. Uh, there's a Latin phrase called memento mori. Memento mori. It's, it's a phrase from Stoic philosophy, and, and Christians kind of have adapted it throughout the years, throughout history. And you can actually see it on several of the Puritans' headstones up in northeast, the northeast uh, United States. And the legend of this phrase is that it was whispered by a slave to a Roman general as he was walking triumphantly, marching triumphantly through the streets. He whispered, memento mori. And what the phrase means is remember death or remember that you will die. And essentially what it was saying was, and what it was depicting was that as, as powerful as the, this general is, as strong as he is, as, as victorious as he is, even he will succumb to death one day. And he doesn't know when. He must remember his own mortality. There's actually even a, a type of art found throughout history. I think there's a few pictures that are up there. Um, there's a type of art throughout history that kind of flows through the same vein. And in these, these portraits, you'll see pictures of life and, and flourishing, but then you'll have some sort of element of death within the picture. And what it's saying is, is yes, there's life and yes, there's flourishing, but death is always lurking in the background. And, and the Stoics would use this as if to say, remember death so that you may truly live. Remember death so that you may truly live. See, I think sometimes we would agree that sometimes the people who live the most full lives 
are the ones with terminal diagnoses. Why? Because their perspectives have changed. There's, a, there's actually a stoic proverb that, it's, it's pretty dark, but, but this is what it says. It says, as you kiss your son goodnight, whisper to yourself, he may be dead in the morning. I know that's stupid dark, I'm sorry. But, but here, think about the point. Think about what it's saying. It's saying, if you truly believed that your son was gonna, could die at any moment, if you truly believed that the next day he might not be there, how is that gonna impact your time with him now? It's gonna, you're gonna cherish it, right? You're gonna value that time. You're gonna be intentional with that time. You're gonna see it as, as precious. Even the most mundane day-to-day moments are seen as precious with this type of mentality. For me, I think back to um, this Christmas, um, and Sarah does all the Christmas decorating in our house, and she was putting ornaments up on the tree, and I looked over, and my, my sweet and tender-hearted, precious wife had tears just welling up in her eyes, and I was like, uh, what's going on? You okay, Sarah? And she said, she was holding an ornament of our dog, Maggie, with her picture on it, And she said, for some reason, my mind just flashed to the day when I put this up there and she's not sitting here with me as I do it. I was like, wow, that got dark really fast. That is quite tragic. Um, And and after that moment when she did that, when she was talking about that, what do you think she did? She sat there with Maggie and she petted her. Now, on any given night, you can find us sitting there watching TV, playing a game, with Maggie just sitting there pouting, looking at us so bored, and we're not giving her any attention because in the day-to-day, we're not really thinking about it. But in the moment when she considered her mortality, she valued the time that she had now, and she maximized that time to enjoy her as a precious gift. That's the heartbeat here. That's the point that Ecclesiastes is trying to get across to us. There's actually a verse in Ecclesiastes 7, 2 that says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Essentially, they're saying, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. And you're like, what? Why? Because at a funeral, it's gonna bring things into perspective. When you're faced with the truth of the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death, it's gonna enable you to enjoy life and live intentionally. And so this is the mentality that we embrace. Moses is gonna write in Psalm 90, 12, he's gonna say it this way, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, to know that our days are numbered. Now, this isn't a live today like it's your last day. That, that, that little proverb, that little wisdom saying that it's, it's a good and it's got a good sentiment, but but it kind of can have some negative outcomes. If you lived every day like it was your last day, then you're gonna burn all your money, you might burn some relationships, you're gonna live pretty recklessly, and overall it's probably not gonna be that fruitful. You might do some bold things which would be great and do some things you might not already do, but at the end of the day it's gonna lead to reckless living. And so that's not what this is saying. This is saying number your days. Know that your days are numbered. Know that that life is short and you don't know when your time's gonna come and let that lead you to enjoy the days that you do have. Let that lead you to live intentionally and live with wisdom. You don't wanna, with that kind of mentality, you don't wanna waste a single moment. And so the teacher says in verse seven, uh, if you, in the verses we read, in verse seven he says, eat bread and drink wine. 
enjoy good food and good drink. Enjoy the, the good things that God graciously gives you to enjoy. Enjoy getting a good meal. Enjoy playing a game with friends. Enjoy uh, watching a show, listening to good music. Enjoy going on a walk. Your time is short, and this life can be extremely hard. And so enjoy the good things that God gives you to enjoy. In verse 8, he says, Let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking from your head. And when I first heard this, I was a little confused. I was thinking maybe he was speaking about the priesthood or royalty and not really sure. But when I realized what it was saying, I thought it was so cool. What it, what it was saying is, you know, when they would go into mourning, they would put on sackcloth, they'd tear their clothes, put on sackcloth, um, and, and they'd go into mourning. And here, saying, no, put on white clothes. And these white clothes, they would have helped reflect the sun. It would, it would have been comforting for them. It would have been a, a sign of joy. And then the, the oil, it moisturized their dry skin because of their climate. And so he says, hey, do things that you enjoy. Do things that, that comfort you. So, so enjoy an air-conditioned house. Enjoy a soft bed and a good nap. Enjoy good things that God graciously gives you that bring you comfort. In verse 9, he says, enjoy your wife whom you love. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy your family. Enjoy other people. And, and hear me say this. I'm not saying that the Christian life is always fun and there's never suffering. In fact, the reality is for for probably pretty much everyone here, suffering is probably going to be a part of your story in some way, especially as a believer. And I'm not saying that the Christian life should be spent pursuing all these things as an end, pursuing all the good things and all the gifts. It's not, it's not meant to pursue them as an end, because oftentimes for Christians, we're called to sacrifice, and we're called to be generous and give things away. But what I am saying is that when Christ is your ultimate hope and you're in pursuit you then have the freedom to enjoy the things that God graciously gives you to enjoy. Because of him, we can enjoy his gracious gifts. And when you live this way, this is so cool, when you live this way, enjoying life becomes an act of worship. Do you hear that? You, when you are enjoying life, when you live with this mentality, with, with Christ as your end, ultimately enjoying him, enjoying life, and enjoying your time in this life becomes an act of worship. As you see and cherish the things that you enjoy, your heart is then filled with gratitude and thankfulness for the giver of the gifts, and you will in turn cherish him all the more. As you cherish the good gifts he gives, your heart is filled with gratitude for him, and you will in turn cherish him even more. See, enjoying life becomes an act of worship for us. And when you enjoy the good gifts from your God, it'll give you excitement for what is to come. Here's what I mean. All throughout scripture, there's all this language of feast and party talking about our eternity with God, talking about our heaven and the new heaven, the new earth, spending time with him. It's, it's, it's party language and feast language. And what uh, David Gibson says, he says it like this. I really like it. He says, every meal, talking about in this life, every meal is a foretaste, an appetizer for the banquet yet to come. See, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. 
They smell and taste and feel like home. See, we, we enjoy the good things in this life that God graciously gives us, and they're just a taste of what life will be to come after this life. When we will enjoy these things to their fullest without being tainted from the curse of sin. And so as we enjoy the things of this life, it casts our eyes to what is to come. And because of Christ, when, when faced with the reality of death, we can enjoy life and we can also live with intentionality. Look to verse 10. In verse 10, the teacher encourages us to work hard at whatever we do because we know our work will be finished when we die. That when, we're, when we pass on from this life, our work is finished and our time is limited. So that means we need to make the most of our time. We want to live as God designed us to live. We want to live in obedience because that's how he, he called us to live. Why would we waste our time living counter to his design? Why would we waste our time trying to uh, do the things that we want to do and be the rule of our own lives when we know that that's only going to bring death and destruction? When our, our time is limited, we will leverage it for God's glory. When we know that death is coming, not just for us, but to those around us, it will drive us to a passionate pursuit of the law so that we can proclaim the name of Jesus, the very author of life that can bring salvation, knowing that he is the only way to true hope and to true life. When our days are numbered, there is no time to waste. So how does the Christian respond to the reality that, that life is uncertain and death is certain? The Christian enjoys life and lives with intentionality. So just wrapping this up for us uh, tonight, sometimes it's better for us to go to a funeral than to a party. When we come face to face with death, it gives us a perspective. When we're faced with our own mortality, when we're faced with the reality that we will one day die, we're forced to reckon with the truth that we have sinned against the holy God of the universe. And for some of you, uh, to, to face death is frightening to you. And it's frightening because your sins have not been punished on the cross of Christ. It's frightening because deep within you, you know that ultimately your sins will one day be judged for all eternity. And my hope is that as we've talked, as we study this passage, that you've considered these truths. That, that you've seen your own sin that you've seen the weight of your own sin and that it has brought you to a point of desperation. And my hope and my prayer is that in your desperation, you will turn and trust Jesus. You will confess him as Lord of your life, believing and trusting in these truths, believing and trusting in who Jesus is, believing and trusting in, in what he did on the cross to die for your sins and believing and trusting that God raised him from the dead, that he conquered death with that resurrection. And if you do this, your sins will be forgiven, you'll be given new life, and though you may die, yet you shall live. And for, for all the many of you here who are followers of Jesus, I hope that you'll be reminded and faced with the reality of death that seeing the reality of death is actually a way that you preach the gospel to yourself regularly. And here's what I mean. Death is a reminder of sin and the effects of sin. Death, when we see death all around us, 
when we're wounded by death in some way. It's a reminder of, of sin and the brokenness of this world. It's a reminder of your role in sin and, and bringing the brokenness into this world. And, and death is also a reminder that though you may die, yet you shall live. It's a way to remind yourself of the king who conquered death itself. Matt McCullough writes this. He says, as we experience death's sting everywhere, we're also experiencing the relevance of Jesus's promise of victory. In other words, recognizing the relevance of death every day is how we recognize the relevance of Jesus every day too. So as we see the reality of death and its brokenness and, and the way it wounds us in this world, in this life, it reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ and the King who defeated death and the risen Savior, Jesus. And you see, the world doesn't face death the same way the Christian does. Yes, the, the Christian is constantly cut and wounded by death. The, the Christian will, like everyone else, one day succumb to death. But the Christian is not ultimately defeated by death. Those cuts and wounds, they, they bring tears. They, they bring grieving. And sometimes, yes, they leave scars. But by Christ's wounds by his stripes, by his scars, we have been ultimately healed. And because of this truth, even amidst great pain, we can boldly proclaim what it teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 56. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, memento mori, remember death. Come face to face with your own mortality. Remember that you will die, but remember that though you shall die, yet you shall live. Live as though, yes, your days are numbered, and let that allow you to enjoy the gifts from a gracious God who loves you. And as you enjoy these gifts, let them stir your heart's affections for him and excite you for the great feast that is to come. Let it allow you to be intentional with your time and let it allow you to leverage it for the glory of God and let it drive you to passionately move towards the lost and dying world around you and point them to the hope for salvation and life through none other than Jesus Christ.